Breathing is something a lot of us take for granted, but our guest on this week's Cityscape says the way in which we breathe could improve our physical health and state of mind, and not just during a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm George Boldarki. Dr. Richard Brown is an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and co-author of The Healing Power of the Breath. Dr. Brown teaches advanced breath techniques to help people relieve stress and improve mood, mental focus, empathy, and performance. Our interview with him is part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, focused on efforts to help improve our mental and emotional well-being. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's great to be here with you today. So we need to breathe to stay alive, of course, but what else can you tell us about the value of breathing? Well, breathing is the most crucial source of energy for our cells, but recent research has gotten away from focusing primarily on the oxygen and carbon dioxide gas exchange. What is, I think, really crucial is that how we breathe affects how crucial foundational parts of our nervous system are working. And that's very important for your brain working better, for every system in your body working optimally. Um, So the kind of core breathing that we teach to help people be empowered and do better than they would otherwise do, as well as to heal from many different stress-related problems, was described 3,000 years ago in a Chinese Buddhist medical text. And they described it as the breathing for longevity. Uh, and it's, it's kind of been around a long time, hidden in religious or other sacred traditions, uh, typically for people doing spiritual practice or for martial artists. Uh, modern research began to uh, get some idea about it. In the early 90s, Paul Lehrer, a psychologist in Jersey, worked with Japanese researchers going to three famous traditional Zen monasteries around Tokyo. And they measured what was happening in the monks as they meditated. And they they were measuring a bunch of things. They didn't have really anything predetermined. Um, And they also had the abbots in charge of the monks rate them as whether they were advanced or not. It turned out all the ones rated as advanced had been meditating for 20 or more years for more than eight hours a day, or at least eight hours a day. And they found when they started meditating, they began doing this kind of breathing. Now, they didn't know anything about ancient Chinese texts. Uh, But what they did see as they studied it more when they went back home is that when people were doing the breathing, things became optimal. And then they began doing experiments, which were paralleled by a different group in Italy, headed by a cardiologist who studies high altitude adaptation. And both laboratories at the same time, not knowing they were doing it, began to study what happens when you have regular people do this kind of breathing, as well as all possible rhythms, leaving out breath holding, that's a separate subject, And both laboratories found that amazing things happened and that every system they've been able to measure, I think there's some they haven't measured that are shifted in interesting ways, but mostly everything became optimal. And that's your hormones, that's how your brain works, that's your heart rate variability, which is perhaps at the moment the best single predictor of health and longevity. So, 
for myself, I was first uh, exposed to this breathing in, a, in the early 1980s. I started doing yoga when I was nine. I began doing Japanese martial arts when I was 12 and began doing a lot of different things. And in the early 80s, I began doing Aikido with a famous Japanese teacher who was known, not only known for his Zen, but in that style of Aikido, you do breathing. So what is that for those not familiar with Aikido? Yeah, if people want to look it up uh, to learn more about it, two different names have been given to it. So Stephen Elliott in the United States calls it coherent breathing. Most of our systems operate within coherent rhythms most of the time. We often feel our best when our rhythms are becoming more coherent. The breathing very quickly brings the rhythms in the systems of the body into coherence, meaning they have a regular instead of chaotic alignment. Now that's, Stephen Elliott is a kind of a Qigong and yoga teacher who's also an engineer and he became fascinated and began to study this and he was doing biofeedback with it and began lecturing on it. Uh, and um, in Italy, uh, Dr. Bernardi, Luciano Bernardi at the University of Milan, a cardiologist who studies high, high altitude adaptation, called it resonant breathing. So not only is there a coherence within each system, different systems, and I would say, I do believe an Eastern uh, concept is mind, body, spirit. And we can, my, my feeling is tap into the spirit by our breathing and you set up a resonance between the mind, the body, and the spirit when you do this kind of breathing. So how much did that change your own life when you started to change the way you were breathing? Right. Well, the interesting thing was I had done many kinds of breathing from many different teachers since I was a boy, from India, from China, from Japan. And uh, I had done a lot of Zen, uh, traditional Zen, not kind of the way things were often done with Zen in America for years. And after years of doing Zen meditation, I felt like a bottomless ocean is the best way I can describe it. When I began to do the breathing, I felt like a bottomless ocean of joy. And uh, I began to find that interesting things would happen where different spiritual teachers would contact me and suggest that different kinds of breathing could help my patients and me. And uh, I had done a lot of stuff, so I didn't do it. But then I began to train with different teachers and experiencing different kind of breathing and seeing my patients before I became a teacher, referring patients to learn the kinds of breathing and people who I'd seen for years who really, you know, they were partially better. Uh, our medications and therapies are quite helpful, but they certainly, after they learned the breathing, many of them, not all of them, but many of them said, I feel transformed. And I didn't appreciate until I began to do it more in depth what they meant by that. And the other thing was I, I was exposed to this kind of breathing doing this style of Qigong and yoga in the 80s. And I didn't do it long enough at any one's sitting to really appreciate. And I didn't do it weeks in a row doing it with a good dose a day because what a Western, Western concept is uh, we don't accumulate stress. In Asia, they fell for several thousand years we accumulate stress over time. I think of it as like you're a ship going through the water and you collect barnacles on you. And every spring you have to polish the barnacles off and make your ship new again to go through the water smoothly. 
And no one teaches us how to deal with our negative emotions and those stress and how to wash that away. And as I found the change happening in myself and meeting amazing people who taught me so much is I realized this was kind of like, well, one metaphor that one teacher gave me was imagine that your mind is like a tablecloth. And what happens when you and your family eat at the table every day? You get dirt and stains on it. And no one has taught you how to put the tablecloth of your mind through the wash. So I feel like, and, and the other thing is as I trained, for example, one teacher took me to a famous uh, Hindu temple in New Delhi that was designed by Gandhi, who was a Sanskrit scholar, and he picked out crucial passages. And one passage in English and Hindi on the marble slabs, I still remember it, I, I'm paraphrasing it a bit, but this has been over 20 years, but it said, first the movement, then the breathing, and then the meditation, and then the energy of grace will kind of saturate the whole nervous system. And as I train with different masters from different countries, I began to look for the overlaps in those things and realize in ancient times, they always did first movement, then movement with attentional breathing, as being really aware of how you were breathing, then pure breathing into deep meditation and deeper meditation than we generally do. Those things have come to us in the US usually as either meditation or stretching or breathing. And they're really meant to be done in a certain sequence in a certain way. I, I guess just getting back to how to, what did I really notice? One thing that uh, comes to me was uh, one doctor I trained as an intern many years ago, she experienced a metastatic cancer with two young children. And she had sent many patients to me to learn the breathing from me, but she came and did the course and she had been damaged by chemotherapy and had a severe peripheral neuropathy with severe pain and three days of intense breathing and her nerves recovered, her pain went away. And she said to me, you know, the course has been great, but I remember when you were teaching me when I was an intern and you were really tough. And she said, you're so sweet now, you've been spiritualized. It's kind of like being caramelized. <laughs> and I figured sometimes it's better to hear it from other people it's hard to be objective about ourselves. So are these short-term exercises that you're talking about, do it for three days and you'll feel better, or should we be changing the way we're breathing all the time? In between. So the interesting thing is you don't have to do it all the time. People often are worried they have to do that. Um, I would say we find for healthy people, you usually, at least for some months, have to do 20 minutes of breathing a day. What happens after a while is you slip in and out of it naturally when you can, or when a big stress happens, you just find your lungs start doing the breathing, which is an amazing experience. You are being breathed by a more full consciousness than your everyday consciousness. Um, and what I say to people is, I'm not giving you Twinkies, I'm giving you spinach. Most people feel calmer and clearer in their mind within five to eight minutes. But the transformational changes, I'd say, usually take for most people about three to 12 months. And for me, at the end of a year, I realized, oh my God, I had so much stress becoming a doctor and I didn't realize what it did to me. And I just felt much freer and I was much less stressed. I was able to meet people where they were at. I was much better for my patients, for one thing. And my family also noticed 
that you know there were a lot of changes. And I, I I teach a lot of doctors among the many people we teach, and when I say we, I mean my wife, who's also a psychiatrist, and she trained at Harvard, and she wouldn't have done this until she was ill, and conventional medicine didn't help her, and she had to do these kinds of things to begin to recover. But um, you know what we find is for a healthy person, twenty minutes a day. And for people with health-related problems or emotional issues, usually for one to three months, about 20 minutes twice a day. And we found teaching all over the world, most people find, won't do more than about 15 or 20 minutes a day unless they're really motivated because they're suffering. And we also try to find a way to make this have the biggest transformation in a short time that was measurable in a lab and subjectively obvious to the person. Because we just found, and we helped, we helped somebody get her PhD in Canada using a, a Kundalini yoga breathing program, similar but a little bit different from what we do. Because one of the things she studied in long term with the group was how long did people actually end up doing it? And she found, like we'd found teaching thousands of people in different cultures around the world, it's about 15 or 20 minutes. So we had to get the result in that time. So what's involved in the type of breathing you're talking about? What should we be doing in that 15 to 20 minutes? There's the concept and then there's the practice. And it's really a skill. So I find I can tell you what we do, but we find we really have to coach people. It's kind of like if somebody told you how to do basketball or how to shoot a rifle or hit a, hit a tennis ball, You'd have some idea, but you got to practice and you got to be coached. And what's interesting is that although we've taught thousands of people in person, including people who are like 9-11 responders or military with PTSD in multiple countries, countries in Africa where they not only have military combat PTSD, but they have severe physical wounds and they have no opioids for pain. Uh, they're really motivated to learn this because we've, we've taken military and in two hours, they don't need opioids. They don't have pain that was severe despite being on multiple opioids. Chronic pain is the number one problem in America these days. Uh, so what's different is there are several things because each kind of breathing we teach works on different parts of the autonomic system. And that balances things and we've shown we can help for example, we've worked with Cornell and we're about to start a new better study, even showing that patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis were dramatically helped. Things that doctors told their patients, you just have an autoimmune disease, take this drug and you'll be okay. They could change the level of stress and inflammation going on in their body and have great benefit and not have to rely as heavily on medical interventions, but often had side effects or, or other problems with them in, in many cases. So one thing is we teach people how to slow their breathing down to a pivotal point, which tends, depends a little bit on whether you're of average height or tall height. And we also, because the children in America as well as the world are so stressed right now, we've been doing a lot of work with children and we do that internationally. And Zoom and the pandemic has made this even more timely. I mean, it's wonderful working with wonderful people from all over the world. So we slow the breath down to this point and Bernardi in Italy had really shown the dramatic changes because he saw it in people who live at high altitude. They wouldn't be able to live there if they hadn't evolved to breathe this way without even thinking about it. 
So we have to train at first to be able to do it. For the person of average height, it's around five, four and a half to six breaths per minute. How many breaths per minute does the average person take typically? Crucial, yeah. It looks like most people are breathing. If you ask a medical professional, let's say, oh, around 15 breaths. When we measure it in our courses where people come often with a lot of stress, even though they may not have a diagnosis, they're often breathing around 20 breaths per minute. So it's a lot slower than people are used to breathing. And we can add things to it. And we can also have some other breath because since it may take some months to really kind of rewire your system, repair it in a sense from the damage of accumulated stress, there are other breathings that we can use that in the short term, you can quickly correct things and help. It's, it's fascinating to me because the Chinese kept very much better records of what happens as people do breathing. And the approach taken in many countries was to first you teach people really slow breathing for years, and then you teach them fast breathing, and then you teach them this kind of breathing, because that's what advanced people do in the ancient practices, whether it's China or India or Japan or Russia and Siberia. And um, we just found most people, whatever culture we were in, they didn't want to spend years doing this stuff. They needed to feel better in five minutes and realize you'll get even better over the next year or so, or three months. Depends on the person. I, 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 we've done a lot of work with military, and I remember teaching a bunch of military uh, health professionals who were helping people recover from both physical and emotional injuries. And one guy, like in two days, he was operating at a level most people take two or three years doing the breathing to reach. His body was so skillful, neurologically and physically. And to me, that's so great to be able to have someone like that coaching people recovering from physical and emotional injuries. What's the first step someone can take to slow down their breathing? How do you do it? Well, one of the things we found made this important because in, in Aikido, our master taught us how to do it using kind of Zen wooden clappers. About six seconds in, six seconds out, and, uh, or five seconds in, five seconds out, uh, and so on. But what we found was Stephen Elliott, uh, who I mentioned before at Coherence.com, he synthesized a kind of chime or bell track. And we found a lot of people found that so helpful to pace their breathing because a lot of people would count it. And as soon as you start counting, it engages part of your brain that has to do with achievement. And it shuts a lot of these crucial systems off. <laughs> it just messes the whole thing up. Even if you're trying to do it, in, even if you're breathing in that speed, your mind is not going along with it. And there's really fascinating research going on showing that if you pace your breathing in this way, it really makes your brainwaves start to become coherent. This is just in the last year or two. And that if you then pay attention to feeling the breath, which is how Buddha described teaching breathing several thousand years ago, in Southern Buddhist sutras. So Thich Nhat Hanh is from that Southern Buddhist tradition. And Anapanasati is how this first breathing that Buddha taught uh, is called. And he basically says, pay attention to the feeling of the breath moving in and out of your nose and throat and the front of your body and teaching people in the laboratory. And this is independent of our work. What they saw was 
first when people pace the breathing, great things happen in terms of certain circuits connecting together in the brain. But then when you paid attention to the feeling of the breath, it further shifted those circuits. So it begins to correct major problems of our attention and how our brain is working. At the same time, and we, and we know this breathing dramatically quickly improves heart rate variability, that great marker of health and longevity. A group in, Nor in Norway for the last 20 or plus years, they've been using cardio exercise to improve heart rate variability in, in military, particularly Navy there. And what they found was when they did that, they could solve much more problem, much more difficult problems more quickly and creatively than people who weren't doing that activity every day. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of research that's really coming together in an amazing way, but we feel that the breathing everybody can do, not everybody can do cardio for several hours a day intensively for multiple reasons, and you can change your breathing anytime, anywhere. I was going to ask the question, can you do these types of exercise without anyone noticing during a tense meeting at work, for instance? It's so great, or on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> or in a class. <clears throat> and we, we've done a lot of work with both college kids and high school kids, especially high school kids preparing for SATs, how to use the breathing to get the most out of your study periods, how to prepare for going into the exam that day and while you're in the exam. And it just, and I remember times, uh, you know, as a pre-med, we had teachers who were jealous that we were likely to become doctors and they were as smart or smarter than us. And they were gonna do their best to flunk as many of us as they could. And I remember getting tests and it's like, the test bore no relation to any lecture or book we had read in the class. And it's like, oh my God, and your brain tends to freeze. You just like go, it's like a deer in the headlights. And I intuitively did some breathing, but I didn't really know how to do it. And when you know how to do it, you can just like dissolve that right away. Why is it we're so conditioned to sort of breathe this way when we're upset? And then our shoulders go up and our chest expands. Why is that? Well, it's a fascinating area, and I, I, I'll try to make it succinct, but it looks like we can pretty much feel either safe or unsafe anytime, all day. And you can say, okay, there's a degree of safety, there's a degree of unsafety, but pretty much you either feel pretty safe or you feel not safe. And it turns out that different physical patterns, including how you breathe, go with feeling safe or not safe. And the problem is, it looks like small babies do their equivalent of this breathing naturally. But then when we start to have to compete and become independent and survive, it messes up how we do it. And the level of stress in our mind leads us to breathe in a stressful way, unconsciously, through most of our day. And even when you're asleep, most of us are having anxiety dreams during a good part of our dream periods. And so your system is going crazy with, with stress. And what's great is that over time, it shifts how different parts of your brain are working. So the, the brain scans of a high-level Tibetan Lama look really different from the ordinary person. Uh, after we developed this program, after studying with different masters, and we really wanted to find stuff that came up in multiple cultures, thousands of miles or hundreds of miles apart, thousands of years apart, 
but were virtually the same thing because we figured this shows it's tapping into the foundational parts of our nervous system. And then having done that, uh, you know, what we found was it was just so freeing for people. Uh, at first, they weren't even sure what was happening because it's so different. And then my wife found a paper in an Indian medical journal uh, describing pretty much the program I've developed uh, over these last 20 plus years. And they, they took a group of beginners and they had them do pretty much the same kind of program for like 30 minutes a day for a month. And at the end of that month, their brain waves looked like the coherent resonant brain waves of yogis who'd been practicing for 20 plus years, many hours a day, that you didn't have to do all that other stuff. Because when people develop this stuff, they got in a better state, but they didn't quite know how they got there. So they felt like their students had to do everything that they had to do on the way there. And our feeling is we can use science to like really hone down on the things that create the biggest change. And some years ago, I was invited by a wonderful group in Netherlands to lecture. They were doing a, a, a two days of natural things for psychiatric issues. And two of the lecturers I walked into the room were Tibetan lamas. And we just looked at each other. And one of them didn't speak any English. The other had pretty fluent English. He spoke multiple languages. And we started talking and I said, so, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, you all usually do very, very advanced meditations for years before you even teach people the breathing and you, you teach a lot of other stuff. And I said, but what's the real goal? What do you want to achieve with that? And he said, emptiness with bliss. And what it says, the breathing, but especially the meditation, we usually teach people advanced meditation that they ordinarily couldn't do for years right after they learn this breathing, because once they learn the breathing, they can do all kinds of advanced meditation stuff they otherwise couldn't do. And that gives the emptiness. That is, your mind lets go of expectations and assumptions that really degrade the quality of our experience in life. And the breathing gives you much more a sense of joy. You get a clarity from meditation, but my feeling is you don't that often have a feeling of bliss. And when you combine the breathing and meditation, it comes out that way. So when you learn and practice this type of breathing consciously, does it translate into your subconscious when you're sleeping and having an anxiety dream? Oh, it's very interesting. Is it not only do I find that people report they're not having anxiety dreams like before, but a common metaphor would be a common kind of dream is I was in my attic in my house or my grandmother's attic and I was cleaning stuff out, throwing stuff out. And then there's this beautiful big space in there. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have to kind of collect things in our mind at different stages of life. But my feeling is you want your system to be flexible and you don't want to hang on to the garbage. And there's a time where you have to throw out all the old articles, all the old folders, all the old, old devices and make space for new stuff. And especially because the pace of change is so much faster since the year 2000. And, and I, I just find the young people are having such a hard time, even before the pandemic, like a year before it started, the Wall Street Journal did a nationwide survey of college freshmen. And like it was, I think 85% said that they felt woefully, emotionally unprepared for college 
they were extremely anxious. And my feeling is we need to give everybody the tools to handle this. And in America, we have the legacy of racism, the inequality that can happen within even each race uh, that we need to correct. And we're basically, my feeling is we've gone through the equivalent of a genocide. So we do work in Africa in areas with genocide. And we find that teaching the breathing can be so extraordinarily helpful. So one of our goals is to help repair war-torn or past post-genocide cultures around the world, teaching the breathing. Everyone has PTSD there. But my own feeling is, it's in what we know from the studies of our autonomic system is, you may not know a lot of people have died around you, but your body feels it somehow. And we are experiencing tremendous stress, but we don't, we're not even able to admit where it's coming from. And my feeling is that also disconnects you from your genuine self and from other people. And then that's, that's I think, one of multiple reasons why people get into weird ideas about it all. If we could begin to do this together, it can help us reconnect. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Great to talk to you. For more information about Dr. Richard Brown and his work, visit breath-body-mind.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow and to the work of the Strike Accord Committee of WFUV's Community Advisory Board. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.